And we're starting off, as per always, with our very same David Shapiro. David, it's good as always to, to have you on the program, and uh, especially after a little break like this. Um, Cecil. Well, look, the results came out. I'm just trying to recall the results. I think they were in line with the expectations. But, Alec, to put it in perspective, the big question is, uh, now that we're, management has been replaced, um, the two CEOs, the joint CEOs stood down, um, now it's up to the new manager, management in place to actually bring to life this monster that they've created in uh, Louisiana, which is a cracker plant. Um, while they will get all the engines burning, it's taking a bit of time to get it, to get it up to uh, full production. But there's always a concern because this is in the chemical industry. So, so uh, you rely a lot on the prices that you're going to get for the product that you actually produce. Um, they still a little bit away from, you know, from getting production to the levels that they intend. But I mean, the markets, the jury's out. And you know what surprised me? Alec, if you do the numbers, this share price should be trading a lot higher because you're virtually buying that cracker plant in Louisiana for nothing. And according to, to the numbers, what they should be generating in cash, uh, we should be seeing a share price of Sassel around about anywhere from 350 up to 400. Um, you've got me a little off guard here because I haven't got the numbers in front of me. But I mean, we're still hovering in that area of 286 rand a share, which tells me that the market is still cautious about where the, uh, you know, where Sassel is heading. But on the face of it, it's a share price that should be uh, a lot higher. So if they do get things right, I think you could see things picking up. But I'm saying there are big ifs around that. What about the departure of the CEOs, the joint CEOs? Mm. Well, they had to fall on their swords. I mean, this was a mess, mess of gigantic proportions, which was mainly uh, huge overrunning costs and lack of control over the, over the overruns. Um, so, you know, it was just the right thing for both managements to, to actually step down. You say they had to fall on their swords. There have been yep. many other instances of the CEOs messing up and not, not falling on their swords. I know, I know. I, I think it was the right thing to do. I don't think they could have escaped what probably would have come next is, uh, you know, interrogation of, of how they allowed this to happen. Yeah, so yeah. it was quite mm. a damning report. You know, it's, the report just highlighted uh, a fundamental lack of control and governance. Not stealing, okay, not anything, um, uh, you know, of that nature, but rather just uh, an incompetent management of the project. You know, David, it's, a, it's such an interesting story, this, because mm. when they first postponed their results ahead of the mm. postponement, we had an interview lined up with the joint CEOs. Uh, then the after the final results were coming out, I think it was after the second postponement, Sassel got hold of us and said the joint CEOs are available on Monday morning. So this was on Friday. So help me, over the weekend they got yeah. fired, and, yes. uh, and we, we so even they didn't even didn't know that it was going to happen like yeah. that. That's uh, that sounds to me like a board that has just had enough. Absolutely right. No, did right. I think I think it's the first time we've seen that exercised um, that they they have had enough and it was probably uh, look the whole board 
has to be questioned and interrogated. And of course, these decisions are not made solely by the CEOs. Sometimes they're persuasive, but um, it's it's also up to the board. And that's why we have non-executive directors to act on behalf of other stakeholders, which mm-hmm. include the employees, the the outside, you know, the contractors, whoever you deal with. So, so I think question marks. Uh, they they got off lucky. I think board members got off lucky, but. Uh, uh, the two CEOs did the right thing, and um, you know, there've been new promotions um, that hopefully will swing it. But market's still not warm. That's that's the point. And I like to watch the market because I like to see what what shareholders are thinking. Because if they really feel that things are going in the right direction, uh, we should see shares. You know, we should see the share price a lot higher. Do you know the new CEO? Have you met him? No. No, I don't. I don't know them at all. Mm. Completely out of touch with them. You know, from from within, which is the right thing to do. Uh, people are familiar with it, but uh, I think a lot rests on this Louisiana project, and I don't know enough about that side of the market because it's completely different. It's a it's a it's a poly what's it urethane or polyethylene what it plant, and and things can go wrong there. Mm. And I think. Alec, I must also point out, which I love about the market, the market doesn't need accounting. It marks down the cost of the projects to what they believe a fair return is. Hmm. So the market is very efficient in that. And it's only later that Sassel's official accounts will write down that plan to where the market is. So the market has written down that plan uh, on the strength of what will be a fair return over the t- over time. You know, uh, I hope I hope that's not too funny accounting. But the market. Mm. So if you look at the market cap of Sassel, it's already marked down uh, the cost of that twelve and a half billion dollar project. So we're trading at about one hundred eighty million, uh, one hundred eighty billion market cap. Um, I, I don't want to do the quick maths of <laughs> of twelve point five billion times what's it seven fourteen point seven. That's one hundred eighty three billion. So if you're with me. $12.5 billion equals 183 billion rand. The market cap of Sassel is $179 billion. Therefore, you can either say that the Louisiana project's in at zero, or alternatively, it's been written down to a fair return. Extraordinary. Uh, talking about big projects, one of the big projects that, uh, well, that, that South Africa has uh, been carrying like mm, a millstone is the Kusili and indeed the Madupi mm, power plant. Mm, so now mm. we, we hear that there's going to be a new chief executive of ESC, and we haven't heard his name yet. They need a petrol or electricity man, a person who understands energy. You know, we, it's no longer can you leave it up to a political uh, appointee or someone who doesn't understand the industry. And uh, if we're ever going to get it right, we've got to start moving in that area. Uh, the time for politics is gone, um, and 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 this is really the the foundation of the of the South African economy. Without power, you just can't function. So, um, if it is a man who knows, but then once they appoint him, they've got to listen to him. Mm. You know, they, they they they've got to go along with what he suggests, which I think is going to be very very difficult, um, but absolutely necessary. We've seen what's happening at SAA. Uh, at the moment, the country is being crippled 
by by the strike. But well, I think you're going to get similar action there. Is, is the country being crippled, David? When last did I you don't fly know. SAA? <laughs> My problem is that that I haven't fly, I've flown SAA for a long time. But the concern is that everybody who can't get into an SAA flight is now going to go for the other airlines. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, and crowd me out and make it more expensive for me. And, and <laughs> when you listen to what Peter has to say, I loved his his uh, quip <laughs> when we were in the budget lockup and uh, he was asked about SAA and he said it's it's so unfair that the rich people are being subsidized yeah. by taxpayers so they could fly around the country through SAA whereas the poor people have to go to you have to use trains that keep breaking down. So yeah. it's a complete misallocation of resources. Yeah. And yeah. yet we don't seem to be getting that that story through. All we hear is that the workers justifiably are pretty peed off that it's the corruption of the managers uh, that's caused all mm. this trouble. Now they have to lose their jobs and so on. I suppose it's a bit of a Gordian knot. It is. It's, it's, I, I don't know where you start. Uh, we haven't got the money to finance them through this difficult period. There just isn't the money around, so you've got to start. Unfortunately, uh, you've got to really clean it out and pick it up from there. Look, this should be this. They should be making fortunes of money. They're in an incredible position being here in the southern tip of Africa. Not only are they flying into Africa, but they're flying all over the world from South Africa with the right airlines, with the right kind of service. Why? Why should we be travelling Emirates or Qatar? or any of those other airlines, and making our trips longer than we need to do simply because um, not only are they more efficient, but they're a, they're, they're a, a more pleasant experience, maybe a little cheaper but uh, for some reason. But we should be capturing those airlines to Australia, to anywhere else. You have no alternative. Mm. You know, the best news I got is that I fly to America, and I've avoided SAA, but I heard they're putting on the new A350s, which is an updated, beautiful, efficient new plane. Of course, that's going to swing my, you know, swing my boat as long as the, as long as the costing is right. We, so all, yes. we all want to fly mm. SAA. I think the whole mm. country wants mm. to support mm. the national airline, mm. but not while it's in such a mess and no. has, been, mm. has been plundered in the way that it has. Mm. David, just getting back to Eskom. Can one man make so much, uh, that much of a difference? Uh, Oh, absolutely. If he's a strong-willed person, don't underestimate the, uh, don't underestimate leadership. (laughs) Um, Let's have a look at the richest companies in the world. Uh, From Bill Gates, okay, he's still the richest, but I mean the influence that he had. Uh, It's changed now to, um, to his successors. Um, uh, Sachin, what's it? Sachin Adal? Sacha? Oh, yeah, I've got that wrong. That's it. Just, Satya Nadal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not Nadal, uh, like the tennis player. No, not <laughs> Nadal, the, the tennis player. Um, Bezos. Have a look at uh, LVMH. Bernard Arnault. Very, very powerful the leaders who have got a huge influence on the direction of the companies. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer. Warren Buffett. Will Berkshire be the same? Um, probably not with the same kind of personality or sway that he has. Um, over market. So I think it's very important to get a strong man, you know, in that position. We can go through the whole of economic history in South Africa or the big companies where, uh, leaders are important. So, um, with the right kind of person, yes, it can be a big difference. Talking about leaders, Alan Gray. 
who was yeah. uh, excruciatingly shy and mm-hmm. uh, has created an extraordinary company in, in Alan Gray Investment Council, mm-hmm. I think it used to be called. Are you, uh, did you have the chance to ever meet him? I did. Yeah, I did on numerous occasions. As you say, a very reserved man, uh, but with a very strong head. And the one thing I'm going to say is that I was brought up, you know, I, I, I started the mar- I started on the market in the 60s and 70s, and I've been there ever since. And that, but there was a period in which a lot of the institutions uh, were under scrutiny, or, or didn't um, what's the word observe the law. Uh, or or it, it was more a governance issue. With Alan Gray, he set down certain rules that you never broke. They conducted themselves with exemplary um, you know, attitude towards ethics. They were ethical you know, to the point of you could not, when I say bribe, um, you know how, how you would sometimes influence a, a trader by taking them out for lunch or inviting them to the rugby and so on. With them, they were absolutely straight down the line. And those were the ethics that were set at the top by Alan Gray. So I always remember him for that. I remember him. You you know, you remember Simon Marais. You know so many people that have worked there. And uh, they produced incredible people that, that have come out of that stable. It's almost like if you, if you find somebody in the asset management game who's mm. worked at Alan Gray, yes. uh, you feel that uh, comfortable with giving them your money because they've gone through yeah. that ethical process. I, I guess yeah. in journalism it's, uh, it used to be the same in certain mm. of the, uh, the old business mail at the Rand Daily Mail, for instance. Yeah. If you had people from graduating mm. from the Harold Fridge on yeah. uh, Howard Priest, uh, yeah. Alan Payne class, uh, Bernie Nakin, then you knew these guys weren't going to be exactly taking right. the envelopes. And I guess as yeah. it the same. Delphine Govinda, uh, Annette Hearn, Pete Fulhoun. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of the people that have come from, uh, from Alan Gray and that. And, uh, you know, you respect them, you respect their opinions, and you know where they stand. So he set, you know, he set those governance uh, rules. And you, exactly as you say, you know, good school to have been brought up in. A big loss uh, to South Africa. Mm. He was 81 years old when he passed mm. on uh, from the Eastern Cape and uh, highly celebrated there, uh, the, the whole Grey family, the Grey clan. And we had a lovely piece on Biz News uh, Premium, David, where mm. one of the cousins, Don Grey, wrote a, a tribute to his cousin, Alan. And he said that anyone in the family who wanted to study anywhere in the world, and including Oxford, he sent quite a lot of them to Oxford, Alan Gray would pay for it, quite apart sure. from, from all the money that he put into education for, uh, for other, other people. Many, many thousands of disadvantaged South Africans who've benefited from his mm. largesse there. So, mm. well, glad that he came back to South Africa after his stint in the U.S. with Fidenti- uh, what is it, Fidelity and, and then built a, mm. an amazing company with great ethics. Incredible business. Mm. Mm. Incredible business. And he did it without fancy, <laughs> you know, without headlines. And uh, that's a true uh, benefactor. So great respect for him and a very sad loss. Well, it's a warm welcome to Jared Watson as uh, we pick up on the whole Basasa story. Jared, good to have you uh, here. Lots has happened since uh, a few weeks ago, but most recently last week where you decided to lay a criminal charge against Angelo Agrizi, the guy on the opposing side of the fence to your uncle, uh, the late Gavin. 
What exactly is going on? I was uh, asked to do a forensic of sorts um, on the accounts of Basasa. Um, and that's taken the better part of a year of us looking into the accounts and seeing where there's been misappropriation of funds, etc. And we're now in a position where we're prepared and we have adequate supporting documentation and we, we've now uh, put that together and we have, we'll, I have a professional responsibility effectively to now bring um, charges against any misappropriation that we've identified or any fraud that's occurred within the company. And that was merely me um, fulfilling that process. So what exactly did you find that Agrizia had done? I mean, there are a number of factors, but the, the charges that were opened last week at the Krigazor police station um, uh, related to entities where payments were made uh, in which um, uh, Agritzi, uh, Fantonda, or, or a connected party was a director and or member of that company. So that was the first group of charges that we brought. Um, these were predominantly um, CC, uh, CCs that, that had been formed in the names of Angelo Agritzi and Andres Fantonda. Um, those CCs would then send invoices, I'd say fictitious invoices, to Bosasa. Um, as the COO and CFO of the company, um, uh, Agritzi and Fantonda would then authorize those invoices for payment, and then payment would be made against them. Um, and by doing that, they were able, able to filter funds out of the company and into their personal hands in their, in their CCs. And after a period of time, they would then liquidate those CCs and try to destroy um, I'd say the, the trace of, of uh, the evidence. Um, and they did that. The, we've brought uh, um, initial charges in, in names of four of those CCs that were exclusively in their name and invoices that were sent exclusively and authorized exclusively by them. When you say exclusively, were there other invoices as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a number of other stuff that, that we've uh, uncovered that... Um, that we will have to bring charges for at a later stage. But the, as I said, these ones were the first grouping of items that related specifically to companies where no service was provided and the payment was made to a, a CC and or company in which they were um, directly or connected in some way a member or, or shareholder of that company and or CC. So were you able to work out what happened to the money once it went into that CC? Uh, so yes, some some uh, bank statements were were I think by mistake left behind by them when they left the company, and we were able to tr to even trace items that were so effectively the company would pay to their CC, and we we're even able to trace um, payments from their CC then into their personal bank accounts. Um, but we don't have every single item like that because they didn't leave every single statement behind. But we've been able to trace. Uh, a number of items already just by doing that. But as I said, every item has actually been traced to the CC, which is in their name, or to the company, which is in their name. Um, so, yes, every item has been able to trace to that because we, we, we know the, the company that was paid and it was a company that was in their name. So the relevance here is that you are showing that Agritzi and Fantonda acted in concert uh, on, on, on the one hand. Correct. Correct. And the second thing was that he, they stole from the business. Yet they've said as much, if you like, uh, to the Zondo Commission. So why, why bother? Surely this guy's going to jail anyway. Well, I mean, I can't say what will happen in the criminal justice system, but we have a responsibility. Remember, everyone keeps saying the family versus, versus Bitsy. 
I'm not acting on behalf of the Watson family in any, in any way. I'm now uh, the executive of Gavin's estate, so I act primarily uh, from that aspect as the executive of the estate. I step into his shoes as a, di- as a shareholder and also as a director of the holding company now. So it's from the, from the capacity of the directors and shareholders that I have a responsibility to bring charges. Now that we're aware, we've done our investigation and we're fully aware of, of what occurred, we have a responsibility to bring charges against that. So what, um, so what, that's, what did happen, Jared? There's, there's, uh, there's still a lot of confusion. Uh, they believe that, um, I suppose, most people in the country, including uh, some who've written books on it, believe that your uncle was the kingpin. He was the guy who stole all this money. He was the puppet master. You're now saying, well, uh, Agrizi was also filching, or certainly was filching money from the company as well, and you say you have evidence for that. But what really, from the way you've now got your teeth into it, went on? No, I mean, for me, this is just a, a simple case of corporate espionage, or whatever you want to call it, where these guys were stealing from the company for years. And I believe all they wanted to do was get ahead of the game. We know now, as you know, from the Bosasa files, as you called them when you released them on your website, that what was happening here was you had a group of people within the company that wanted to take it over. That It, it cannot be disputed. It's, the emails are there. The lawyers' letters are there. Um, and and I think the, the logic was once there, uh, I'd say once the cow was taken from them because they were retrenched from the business, they could no longer steal from the business. So then they wanted to take over the business itself. Um, and when that didn't happen, uh, you know, as I said, just look at the timing of events. Uh, the directors of the company opened up criminal charges against the Gritzi in end of August uh, 2018. He only approached the Zonda Commission in September 2017. Uh, 2018, sorry. Um, Frank Dutton says in his in the transcript of his evidence at the Zona Commission that he was approached by Angelo in September 2018, subsequent to criminal charges already being opened up against him by the directors of the company for crime and jury and defamation of character. So I think that he just realized that, um, for lack of a better term, the jig was up, and he tried to get ahead of the game. Mm. And now the, the getting ahead of the game was by blaming everything onto Gavin. That's what you're having to try and prove. But we still keep getting Correct. people coming to us saying Gavin Watson was a crook. He was the he was the the the, the, the mastermind of all of this. He was bribing uh, officials to get prison contracts and so on. Sure. So I mean, what I say to anyone is, any accusation that's made must be tested. At the moment, Busasa have never been found um, guilty of anything in the courts. They, they, their service delivery has never, never been questioned. Uh, neither have any of the tender submissions um, for pricing. Um, these, these things, if, if they need to be tested in court, no, um, no doubt. But um, I don't believe they've been found wanting in any regard until now. Mm. And, and as far as your uncle's uh, death is concerned, is there any more evidence that has come to the fore? No, we're, we're basically in the same position that, we've, that, that has been already re- reported on. Um, the police are keeping their cards close to their chest. They've said to us they cannot disclose um, really anything to us until their investigation is concluded. Um, and until then, we just have to sit tight. Do, have they given you any idea of how long it will take? 
No, I said, I mean, you know, can we get a time frame? And they said, look, they don't want to be, uh, if they gave us a time frame, they'd be held to a time frame. So they don't want to give us a time frame either. But do they suspect that there's foul play? Um, they couldn't say specifically. Um, I think, as I said previously, I asked, uh, you know, um, can they give us any indication in that regard? They said they cannot call anyone a suspect at this stage because from a legal uh, perspective, they, they, they can't do that. They, what happens is they submit their findings to a court and then a court um, determines the course of action for, for, uh, for the police. And only at that time can they define someone as a suspect um, or other. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not investigating people um, from their perspective on items that, that are questionable to them. Um, so, but they cannot define anyone specifically as a suspect just because that isn't the, the process that they follow. Is that a similar thing now with these criminal charges that you've laid against the Greasy and Fantonda? Uh, well, that's still very fresh. So I, I don't know what the process is there. I've been told that it's, it'll be handed over to the Hawks and it'll be investigated. But um, for us, it's just a first step to say, look, these are the thefts that we're aware of from the business. Um, and we have opened the case against that. It's, it's, the charges are theft, fraud, um, and money laundering, effectively, and conspiracy to commit um, fraud. Um, so that is the perspective from, from which the charges were opened. So the police have now presumably got to have a look at that and decide whether or not to investigate. Correct. But as I said, I mean, I've shown you some of the documentation already. Um, it is, it's, it's quite self-explanatory that this was a closed loop of, of authorizations and approvals of Agritzi and Fantonda, effectively preparing invoices from their own companies, signing those invoices by themselves and effecting payment against that invoice. Um, so I cannot see how how they can even the items can even be questioned. And then Alex, other thing that so I don't know if you're aware, but Anderson subs has um, at last week opened up uh, charges of defamation of character against him. He must have known I was opening up criminal charges against him, so he tried to preempt it by bringing charges of defamation of character against me. Mm -hmm. um, oh, for nonsense! Basically, from the Basasa files, effectively mm. saying that we've made these accusations that he perjured himself and he lied under oath and, and these things, and then this, at the suggestion that me saying that he killed Gavin. Well, I mean, the perjury is, we've proven it in the Busasa files that he, he did perjure himself. Mm. And, and regarding um, him being a suspect in the murder, um, I haven't said that he is a suspect, but I was asked, do we suspect him? Who would we suspect if there was anyone? And I said, the reality is the only person we can suspect is, is him because he was the only person we're aware of to date that has threatened the life of Gavin. Mm. Um, uh, threatened Gavin's life. And I mentioned that, um, that in April of last year, um, Marky Schultz said in a News 24 article that, that he, um, that Angelo offered to pay him 2 million rand to seriously assault Gavin. And the funny thing is, I'm just quoting that article. But he doesn't bring a charge of defamation of character against Marky Schultz, who actually made the accusation. He brings it from me for repeating the article in which it was written. Well, it's a, a fireball of note uh, who joins us now, Magnus Haystek. Magnus, uh, we've got a cracking story that you've just written on business. I must tell you, I, I don't know whether you, you um, realize that you still have it from the days of, in journalism. What you write about absolutely hits 
what the public want to read about, it seems. We get tens of thousands of people who log into BizNews to listen to or read, rather, the, the articles that you write. And your latest one, uh, which has just gone up onto the site now, is in the same vein. Um, but there were a few things in there that, and we'll talk about it in general, but there are a few things in there that really intrigued me, like you sitting in the front row of a presentation from a guy from Coronation uh, who then slags you off and didn't even see you there. And you're not a little guy, Magnus. Yeah, good afternoon, Eric. And, I, you know, it, it was just one of those things. Normally these seminars take place in Joburg, Pretoria, Cape Town. I normally go to the Joburg one, and, and, and for, for some reason I happen to land up in the Cape Town presentation of, of, uh, of this particular speaker. And I was sitting there in, 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 the, in the audience, and he, he, he just proceeded to have a go at me because, and he named me my name, <laughs> and he was just looking at me. And, uh, he oh, so he knew you were there. He knew you. He knew you were. It wasn't I was there. in the audience. I was in the audience listening yeah. to him. Yeah. He didn't realize I was there, and uh, he just quietly, uh, he just slunk away after the talk because I wanted to have a chat to him. He just disappeared, but he had a full bodyguard because obviously, you know, he was, you know, he runs a local fund management company, which was not doing well, and obviously there must have been some withdrawal, so he felt a bit uh, irritated by this, but yeah, it was quite a surreal experience. Yeah, and, uh, uh, it's one thing for people to have a go at you while you're not in the room, but if you're sitting in the front row, um, a little difficult. And I guess uh, that is also, sh it shows you that you've hit some very, very um, raw nerves within the asset management industry. You also talk about old mutual fence and saying that South Africa's stock market is going to be the best performer of this year. They're going to need a little miracle to get that right. Yeah, indeed. I was very surprised. It was first week of uh, what was uh, January or February, they went on a road show and it was on all the chat shows, it was on the front page of the financials and it was probably saying, well, SA is going to be the top investment market for the next five years. And, you know, so far, as we see, we up, what, 6% for the year, the uh, overseas markets up 20 to even 30%, and I'm talking about dollar returns, not even land returns. So we are already uh, way behind in the investment race. But, but it's, it's a bigger story than that, Eric. It's just that what I have to understand, there, there should be a definite separation between asset management companies and financial advisors, especially independent financial advisors. And we know you and I come from a background where most of the advisors were tied agents. They mm. worked for the big financial companies, and you have to sing the company's song, and if you don't tell the line, you get booted very quickly. So, but the independents need to be independent and you need to get up and say, I, I don't believe your story and I, I need to advise my clients differently. And I think that's part of the problem. A lot of IFA's independent financial advisors are now starting to say, well, we're going to do our own research and, and not just, uh, just take the material from the marketing departments of these large companies because it's, it's, it's sometimes quite embarrassing to see what they write in an effort to keep or maintain their business. Mm. But it's not just them. It's, it's almost like there's a, a conspiracy just about where the people in certain media outlets repeat those, those press releases and the public get told. I mean, you make the mention of, of Old Mutual. It comes out with a statement where it talks its own book 
And then that appears on the front page of websites as though it is fact. Uh, I think the, it's almost, it, it feels like it's, it's just a whole big shell game and there's only one loser and that's the people who, who actually put the money into these organizations. Yes, quite correct. And, and, but but I, I, unfortunately, it's also a reflection on, uh, of, of the very precarious state of journalism and financial journalism in particular. I mean, you've been in the media for a very long time, and you know the, the numbers. And I have great sympathy for a lot of the uh, media outlets, whether print or, or, or Internet-driven. There's just not enough margin to uh, put a financial journalist on a good story and, 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 they say, and tell him to take three or four days on the story. There's just not enough time. So to a certain extent, even more so, your advisor needs to step into that role and try and get to the truth as far as investment returns are concerned. And I feel very strongly about that. So what happens to you? Now, you, you're you in the uh, position of being an independent. You are pointing out issues that concern you, like the guy from Coronation, like Old Mutual, and you go public with it. Do you get any, any kickback from uh, the organizations? Well, as I say, my column, my invites to lunches and golf days have kind of dried up, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm not the, uh, you know, I'm not very popular on there. Just some of the more serious guys will, will phone and, 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 and make an appointment and say, let's, let's sit down and have a one-on-one chat. And that we respect and we have the debates about underperformance or, and, and then we can, we can have a debate about it and, 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 and get to the facts. But some people just slam you and they, and I think they also put our people to have a go at you on there. On the internet, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world to create a false account and just to have a go at at, at Alec Hogg or at Magnus Hashtag, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's part of the game. You just have to have a very thick skin. If you believe in a, in a viewpoint or a story that you've written, you just live or die with it. But you can't you can't defend yourself every time someone has a go at you. Well, we had Bell Pottinger. I think we, we learnt our skin's got a little thick after that one. Magnus, the, the theme of your story, the thrust of, the thrust of your story, though, is the Rugby World Cup victory has given us the sense of euphoria in South Africa, which is masking some underlying problems that are about to hit. Correct. As I say, it was just a stroke of extreme luck that we had the medium-term budget, then we had Moody's on the Friday and then on the Saturday, um, we had the World Cup win. And, of course, everything was relegated to the back pages. It was just rugby, rugby, rugby. And I was part of it. I mean, I enjoyed it as much as everybody else. But having read the medium-term budget, plus Moody's commentary, plus commentary from other analysts, like Anne Bernstein and, and, and some others, you realize the... It's not it's it's not a joke anymore. And there were some there were some numbers in the in the budget speech which simply just shocked you to the core. The first one was the one paragraph statement that country's debt will escalate from three trillion rand to four and a half trillion rand in three years. As I point out, that's a thousand days. Now that's a massive number, uh, and you don't understand where this comes from. But we do know what the implications are going to be. Interest costs on our debt three years from now will probably overtake uh, social welfare, housing, and of course education, healthcare, etc. It'll be the number one item in our budget. We need to budget 15% of our 
of our income to repay our debts. And that's, that's called a debt spiral. And that, that concerns me. And that's been totally swept under the, under the carpet. And I spend more time than most reading, analyzing, watching TV, listening to commentators. And this thing has just quietly disappeared. And I think part of it was the rugby world cup was just the focus. So these things will come back and bite us in the next three to four months. Unless, unless the ANC pulls out some dramatic turnaround in, in fiscal policy. If not, we are really in, in serious trouble. So what do you do about it as a private investor? Well, as a private investor, you've got to sit down and take responsibility. You've got to sit down with your assets and your investments, with, either with the worker advisor and say, how do I protect myself, my family? What can I do within my portfolios that I can move into a defensive positioning like cash or, or, or high-income funds or maybe get some more offshore exposure. And it's quite surprising how much you can do. I think a lot of investors think that once they've committed to some kind of a strategy or investment product, that they have to ride it, ride the storm until the end. But you don't need to. I mean, if you've got money in pension funds and provident funds, and especially in preservation funds, you can do a tremendous amount because there's no CGT, there's no costs. Yet people just simply live and say, okay, there's nothing I can do, but there's a lot you can do. Sit down with your advisor and and, 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 and protect yourself. I've been writing about this for a long time. My own personal assets in South Africa are mainly in cash and have been so for a long time, and my growth investments have been offshore in equity markets where I've been having very, very good returns. And also in our practice, we've also been advising our clients, where can we protect your overall assets and and, and liabilities? And that's what people need to do. Magnus Haystek is the investment strategist at Brenthurst Wealth, the company that he founded. And it's really good to be talking to Jean-Pierre Fester, who's well, since May, the owner of his own business, Protea Capital Management, uh, Jean-Pierre, you've, you've been involved in a number of uh, successful asset management companies. I guess it was only a matter of time before you did your own thing. Hi, Alec. Yes, maybe similar to you. <laughs> I think when, when someone has got an uh, innate independence and wants to be the master of their own destiny, Naturally, at some point in their careers, they'll move out on their own and uh, and do their own thing. And that time for me came earlier this year. And so far, I'm very happy. I, I work from home and uh, my independence has been enhanced. So I'm enjoying the journey. It's not always easy building your own business, as I'm sure, sure you would know. But um, but so far, so good. So hopefully, it's a, it's a bright future and, and we can build out Protea Capital Management. Thank you. Well, I have no doubt it will be a bright future, given the... Uh, reputation that you have and the ability that one has nowadays to to communicate from pretty much anywhere. Have you managed to pull uh, some of your old clients in with you? Uh, I had some friends and family that uh, were long-standing, you can call them clients of mine, that effectively became the seed capital of the business. And luckily, those friends and family are still friends and indeed family, so they are still with me. And then a few uh, new clients have come, come on the last few months. So the business is uh, thank goodness, already sustainable and profitable at our current level of assets uh, with the friends and family that came along and the new clients. So, uh, so yes, uh, there are some long, long-standing investors that we've made a lot of money for in the past that have continued to be involved. 
Brilliant. That's such a lovely story. Jean-Pierre, let's talk um, bigger uh, issues, I suppose, um, the things that occupy your mind all the time. This morning we heard from Steinhoff that they've made two sales, Benson for Beds in the UK and then uh, Green or the general merchandise operations in Australia. I was surprised to see that, and they're still keeping uh, their household goods in Australia, I was surprised to see they had 10,000 employees in Austra- Australia and New Zealand. This was a very, very serious operation. Do you know that side of the business at all? Well, they are big businesses in terms of revenue and in terms of employees. And in the past, if you look at their segmental results, they did, for instance, put the uh, Asia-Pacific operations, which is mostly the Australian operations, in a separate segment, which which refers to its significance. But uh, it's not that significant in terms of profits, unfortunately. And that's probably why they also haven't disclosed the actual price at which the the transaction was done. Uh, it has been uh, part of the sign of story over the years as they made multiple acquisitions, uh, that they made acquisitions of businesses with very large revenue lines and perhaps even large employee bases. But uh, when it came to profitability, that's, that's sort of where the problems come in due to the lack of profitability. So it's understandable now that they've sold these two businesses, and by not uh, disclosing the purchase price, it also gives one some idea that the profitability wasn't that high, and therefore the purchase price wasn't that significant, or the sales price in, from a sales perspective wasn't that significant either. So probably just, just shedding themselves. Remember that famous story of uh, Whitey Basson buying OK Bazaars for one rand, and everyone thought it was, well, he did a great deal on it, but how could he buy OK Bazaars for one rand back then? A similar thing here, you, you actually take on quite a lot of liability as the purchaser. Exactly. And when you take on liabilities, people forget about the liability side of the balance sheet. Uh, the, the purchase price quite often is a very, very low number. Look, the real value of Steinoff is obviously the, the Pepco business, both Pepco in South Africa as well as Pep and Co in Eastern Europe and a bit in the UK as well. And they have indicated they would look to perhaps try and list the Eastern European and UK Pep and Co business at some point. That could uh, make people aware of the value in that business. Um, but whether it is sufficient to really make a, a, a significant dent to the group's uh, uh, debt situation is still an open question. I, I still feel that the debt that Steinoff is burdened with is, is an unbearable burden and that ultimately either uh, common equity holders will be wiped out or there will be a rights issue. Uh, that will be so dilutive that uh, there's still not a lot of value left uh, for common shareholders, in my opinion. So even at the current share price, is this not a stock that you'd be going into as a value proposition? Even at the current share price, I do feel that with uncertainty of some significant legal claims and the prospect of a very dilutive rights issue, even if those claims are sort of uh, settled, even though that's itself a, a, a low probability event, uh, I feel there's still not sufficient equity value uh, in Steinoff. And then you have the added uh, complexity of a lot of the value being almost trapped in South Africa with the Pepco business being within the foreign exchange uh, restrictive regime of South Africa and therefore them not being able to really crystallize that value and 
uh, repatriate the money offshore to Europe where the, where the debt sits. So because of that complexity, I still don't see value in the current time of share price, no. Uh, Benson for Beds, the UK business that was sold, that seemed to be, um, well, uh, having stayed in the UK for a while, it's quite a well-known brand and it seemed to be maybe a, a prize acquisition for someone. Did they get a reasonable price? Well, again, they didn't disclose the price, which, which I think is a clue in itself, Alec. Um, it's a manufacturing business, and we know that manufacturing businesses in general are under pressure. We know that the UK local economy is under pressure. There'll be, there have been less people emigrating from Europe to the UK, and there will be less going forward if Brexit does occur. So that means less people buying less beds for themselves in the new flat that they might be renting in, uh, in London or other uh, cities and towns in England. So... Because of that, um, one, one has reason to be quite bearish on the, on the furniture market. Um, and uh, th- that is why it's a similar case of the Australian operations where the brand might be known. And there might be many stores and there might be a lot of employees, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a lot of profit being made at the end of the day. So if you were a shareholder, you'd be quite happy to see these two uh, deals today because although you aren't getting anything for them, you're getting it off your balance sheet. Yes, I'd be probably indifferent to it at the moment. I think these are relatively small when it comes to contribution to profitability to the big sign-off business. The big question, if one were a sign-off shareholder, is what is going to happen with Pep & Co? And is there any way to crystallize the value of Pep Core in South Africa? And the third big uncertainty is what can happen with these legal claims that the likes of Christo Visa, which is the biggest legal claim, as well as some other uh, prominent South African investors and um, and potentially European-based uh, shareholders or South Africans that have linked up with those European-based shareholder activist firms, uh, what will be the outcome of any settlement in that regard? Those are the three key uh, uh, elements for me, rather than the small operations that uh, are being disposed of at the moment. Well, a very big operation is Richmond, and uh, the interim report came out last week. I had a read through it. It uh, it made me feel like Richmond might be something to start doing my homework on again. Uh, how did you feel about the numbers? Mm, I, I thought the numbers were slightly disappointing. Uh, firstly, one must remember that in the previous year, they had a large just mark-to-market accounting entry because they bought out the minorities in Uke's Net-a-Portier, which led to a purchase price adjustment. Uh, but if you strip that out and you look at this six-month period versus a year ago, it's more or less flat, and um, that, that, for me, is slightly disappointing. If, if you look on a segmental basis, in the last few years what we have seen is that the, uh, the watches, luxury watches division of Richmond has been under pressure, but the jewelry business uh, has really grown strongly, and that's mostly the Cartier business. What we saw in this result now was that the growth in the jewelry business has slowed down. So it means that the part of, of Richemont that was almost carrying uh, the, the flag for growth has been slowing down. And then the third division that I refer to, Yuc's Net-a-Portier, which is referred to as the online division, uh, that continued to make losses as they continue to invest in that business and change and adapt to the way that people are buying luxury goods, where it's not necessarily just walking into a store, whether it's in Paris or Hong Kong, and buying a luxury watch or a very expensive piece of jewelry, but rather wanting to do it online, wanting a collection of uh, jewelry pieces 
delivered to you and you can have a look and you can send back uh, those that you don't want. And it's a totally different way of, of selling luxury goods. And it's an open question whether one can actually sustainably sell luxury goods on, in an online uh, a channel versus the more traditional face-to-face channel. So with them still not really making profits on the online channel, uh, uh, luxury watches still under broad pressure because of the advent of smart watches where people want more functionality on their wrists. And then lastly, the jewelry business seeing a slowdown in growth, I would characterize these interim results as slightly disappointing. The, one of the things that jumped out at me was the joint venture with Alibaba. Uh, certainly, Johan Rupert in his chairman statement was quite excited about the possibilities or the prospects of that. Um, Alibaba, you don't get much bigger names than that in China. Uh, would that, doesn't that have the potential maybe for turn, to turn around that online business? It does have the potential, but once again, if, if you think of Alibaba and um, T-Mall and Taobao being the two brands under which they operate within China, um, it, it is once again an open question whether the Chinese will want to buy luxury goods over the Internet. Uh, the, the reason for buying luxury goods uh, in Asia, and especially China, is in broad terms a bit different to other places of the world in other cultures, where in other cultures it might be for gifts to a large extent, and in China traditionally it had been for gifts uh, up until there was a crackdown roughly three or four years ago uh, on gifting. But the other reason why a lot of uh, Chinese uh, luxury goods consumers would buy uh, these pieces was is to show their, their status, their, um, their societal status. And um, that is very important in the Chinese market. And therefore, the whole idea of going to a store, being seen outside, being welcomed into the store, being given that respect, is a large part of the whole experience of buying luxury goods rather than just sitting alone in your home and clicking on a button and say buy and, and getting the, the luxury good delivered to your, to your doorstep. So because of that experiment, experiential part of buying luxury goods that's so important in China, I would be surprised if the Alibaba joint venture uh, would really change the Chinese behavior in terms of how they generally buy luxury goods moving from face-to-face to online. I'd be surprised if that really is a big shift in future. Yeah, I reckon if you're rich, you consume conspicuously in many mm. of the developing countries. Jean-Pierre, good talking with you. Thanks for your insights there on uh, two very important stocks on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. And all the best with Protea Capital Management. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Alec. Appreciate your time. Well, it's a warm welcome now to Perry Feldman, who is going to give us some happy news. Well, certainly a lot of people that you guys are making happy, Perry. I've been watching, I've been watching for a while uh, what you're doing at the Free Market Foundation about handing out title deeds. And there's another one of these coming up uh, later this week. You've been running what is called the Kayalam, or My Home Land Reform Project. How long have you been involved with this? Well, I've been involved since the inception. When we, from the time we thought about it, which was about 2009, and then we, it took a while to get to to be able to get the first council on board, and we started work. We we handed it, we presented the first titles in 2013, in October 2013, which coincidentally was 100 years after the the um, the, Act, yeah. the the Lands Act. And um, and I've been I've been working on it full time since twenty October twenty fourteen and it's just taken off. How many title deeds 
have been handed to people as a result of this project? We, those that are in process and handed out are 8,450 at the moment. How did the title deeds come into the possession of those who gave it to them? Just, just explain that whole process to us. Okay, well, let's start, let's start in our, in our model, which is in Gwati, which would be Perez, Copis, Edinburgh, there are five towns there. And in the Free State, my, um, over 70% of houses were self-built without any state help whatsoever. This is unlike the Cape and the, and the Tell. So, so, so what would have happened was that we have an office in, in Tumahole, which is a township in uh, Perez, and people come and apply for, for title deeds. They don't have a title deed, so they don't know whether there was a title deed passed and it was never given to them or anything like that. They know they don't have a physical title deed, so they come and they apply. We get funds and we process these applications. And the first thing that gets done is we do a deed search. And we find that between 15 and 20% of people who apply for a title deed actually have a title deed which was never given to them through some bureaucratic failure or whatever. Hmm. So we, we, we try to do both. We try to then take the, get a copy, which costs just about the same as what it would cost us to get a title deed. And we, uh, and we, we get a title deed. We use an act in the free state called the Upgrading of Land Tenure Rights Act which makes it very simple and cost-effective to do so. And that's the basis of the, of, of the project. But it's important to remember that we, in Nguati, we didn't go knocking on doors and asking people if they wanted a title deed. People want a title deed. They know they want it. They know they need it. They don't know the nuances of a title deed, but they know they must have it so that nobody can take it away from them. Can, can they use that title deed, well, once they have it, to, to gear the property, borrow from the banks? That title deed is the same as you or I have in the white leafy suburbs. It's exactly the same. There are no preemptive clauses. There's no qualifications on it whatsoever. And the story, it's, you know, Alec, it's very difficult to tell you these things over in a short period of time. But what, the big thing about a title deed at the moment is that it's a way of escaping the poverty trap. We in our, in our offices, our air-conditioned offices, think, well, now people are bankable. They can borrow money. They can uh, they can start a business. The main thing that happens: parents now have a title deed and they can apply for a study loan. Their kids get an education, and the kids then pull the parents and the whole family out of the poverty trap. Recently, the MEC for housing in the Western Cape, Tersha Simmers, was at a presentation in Krabou. And I went to him and I said, welcome, and I'm very so happy that you're here because we now have official recognition. He says, I'm here because I have to be here. I'm the product of a title deed. My, my, my parents lived in, uh, in a th- community where 70% of people were on Sasa grants. He says, but my father had a title deed and he used this to get me a loan. And now I've lifted my whole family out of the poverty trap. So when you and I talk about leveraging, this is not something that is the first thing that comes to these people's minds. It's now I'm going to be able to educate my children and I can leave it to somebody. But just explain this to us, Perry, because there are, there are people, millions, tens of millions of people who are living in uh, premises or in, in homes that presumably they don't have title deeds for. Now you've you've gone through a process of, of finding eight, we'll call it eight and a half thousand of those.
But is that not a bit of a drop in the ocean? It is a drop in the ocean. You can, if you include the tribal areas, you can say there are between 5 and 7 million people who live in houses that they don't own. And are unlikely to ever own because how are we going to get to, how are we going to, to transform all these numbers? But we take the view that, and we, it's been proven already that you, how do you eat an elephant? You do it a bite at a time. And if you, if there's enough pressure from the bottom up, government eventually reacts and things happen. And this is what we're seeing. Yeah, something's happening on, on Thursday, and I see the name of Johan Rupert uh, in there. <coughs> What's going on? Is Stellenbosch, is he, is he part of the support of this? Yes, well, Johan Rupert gave us money to do title deeds in Stellenbosch and Grafrenet. And his mandate to us was get people title deeds, which meant that it's broader than just what we do in Nguati. It meant that if people were in the state because of uh, what had happened in the municipality where they would never get a title deed because the state could never do this for them, we had to see how we could unravel it. So we, we've done, re, in, in, for instance, in Grafrenet, Aberdeen, we're doing a resurvey where 184 people will get title deeds to, to, uh, to, sick, to, uh, to, to houses that have, have had to be divided. And this will happen in, uh, in their semi-detached houses. And this will happen in February, March of next year. In Stellenbosch, we've done, we've also done non-conventional things. And what, so this will be the third time that Johan Rupert is handing out title deeds. The first time we did about 117. Last year we did 356. And now there's 133 that are going to be handed out. So it's not buying houses and then giving the, the ownership of the houses to people. It's, it's simply going through the administrative processes that, that haven't been followed. Do I hear you right? Yes, and, uh, and, and paying for the missing link. Mm. And the missing link being some kind of uh, incompetence within the administration. No, look, for instance, in, in Stellenbosch, there's, we, in this country, we have a program called the Title Restitution Project. This project pays for title deeds, but, so the council gets money for title deeds, but there's no finance to find out who, who has, who must get the title deed. So we pay for that, and it results in a title deed. Otherwise, this person would never get a title deed. I got it. So you are <coughs> helping to, to leverage the money that the Ruperts give you, for instance, to to not buy new houses for people, but but actually just to make sure that the admin goes smoothly. Yes, we don't buy any houses, and these people all live in houses, and many of them have lived there for thirty, forty, fifty years. In Nguati, we've given we've uh, we've facilitated title deeds for for instance, a Mrs. Matupi who was ninety nine years old when she got a title deed. She and her husband had built their house with their own money, and they lived in it for 35, 40 years and never had a title deed. And when you ask her what it mean to her, she says, then nobody can take it away from me. Well, what a fascinating story and a wonderful project that uh, the Free Market Foundation is busy with. Closing our show today is David Melville, who I've known for a long time, one of the, one of the guys who... Uh, uh, who, like me, believes that everything happens for a reason and there's a big boss up there who, who, uh, who watches over us. But on the other hand, uh, we do differ a bit on our investment ideas. He, he loves gold, um, <laughs> a little bit like the guy in the Austin Powers movie. Um, but, uh, David, you've been having a really, really tough time and you've kept me in touch 
with the correspondence that you've been having with Sunlam. And I intervened, I guess, to a degree and asked him for some feedback. But it seems like you've hit your head against an administrative uh, blockage here, which just isn't moving. So let's start at the beginning. How did it get to the situation where you and Sunlam started locking horns? Eric, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really do appreciate it. And thank you for your willingness always to, to dig deeper than what's on the surface and get to the truth. I commend you. Yeah, so my situation goes back to probably almost three years ago now. Um, my son, Lemuel, had worked for me as an investment advisor stroke administrator in my practice um, after he'd finished his degree and then decided, no, he wanted to go marketing with Sunlam. So he went and joined Sunlam and spent three happy years with them. But unfortunately, he took a few shortcuts. And by that, I mean, he, he signed some client signatures, but those were secondary signatures. So the application was signed, then he made a mistake, and then he would go and copy the signature, taking shortcuts, which clearly is wrong and not acceptable, but does happen in our industry. And that was his primary fault. And Sunlam followed a process with him, and they ended up uh, cancelling his contract and debarring him with the FSB at the time. Okay, so so he and you're in the financial services game. You're a fan, financial advisor. I, re, I didn't mention that. So he he then gets kicked. He he was working with you. He went to work for Sunlam for three years. Took some shortcuts. Hopefully he's learned his lesson. But he's now been debarred from Sunlam. He can't, does that mean he can't work in the industry anymore? Yes, effectively they they do belt and braces. They cancel your contract and make sure that you can't go anywhere else. And it does seem a bit harsh because, you know, there's there's no um, policy with Sunlam in terms of any grace or any mercy. They have what they call a zero tolerance uh, policy. So if you put a foot wrong, you're gone. And and unfortunately, many Sunlamers have ended up on the wrong side, at the wrath of Sunlam. Uh, they say they're consistent. There's no mercy, so don't even try sort of thing. You put your foot wrong, you're gone. And yet his case took eight months before they got to the bottom of it. And without going into too much detail, he was part of a group where they had an independent uh, advisor. It was, in fact, an advocate who presided over the situation. He listened to Sunlam's side. He listened to Lemuel's side. And his finding was that Lemuel should be given a first and final warning. Sunlam chose to ignore that and fired him and debarred him, which was really... Very hard at the time. Um, he says there are more than 30 Sunlamers that he knows of who've experienced the wrath of Sunlam. The worst is they go ahead and uh, hand you over to a debt collector, so they hound you as soon as any lapses start coming through. Uh, two fellows, in fact, have committed suicide because the stresses became so great. And that really got me very worried that Sunlam, which was perceived to be a good financial insurance, can actually treat people so despicably. Hmm. So what happened next? Okay, so I then made a special appointment to go and see the head of compliance at the time at Sunlam. I met with Mr. Bester. I said to him, look, you know, this is really harsh. He said, look, you know, this has happened. He's not fit and proper in terms of the Fires Act. We debar him, but after 12 months, he can reapply for his license. So he came and worked at me as my administrator. Uh, that was the only way that he could really stay in the industry and do something and earn a living based on his experience. And he was invaluable to me uh, as my administrator, my personal assistant. 
I was really very blessed to have him as my PI. And as a father-son relationship, it was great building up this rapport with him. But when I came to, after the 12 months, we went to Sunlam to ask, can we reinstate now? Can we have permission to go back to the FSB and get his license reinstated? Uh, Mr. Bester said, well, let me just check a little bit and uh, I'll get back to you. Well, it wasn't long after they came back with three instances where he had been involved with reinstating some policies. Now, these were three policies that either the debit order or the stop order backfired and the policies had lapsed. So he went back to the clients and just assisted with that process of putting them back on the books for the client's benefit, Sunland's benefit, and ultimately our benefit, doing the right thing, I would say. But they found this to be uh, in breach of the FIRES Act. They said, no, he's been given advice. And if he hasn't been giving advice, he's been offering intermediary service. And I said, no, this was no new advice. He'd given the financial advice prior to losing his license with Sunland. It was merely a reinstatement filling in the forms and making the submission. They contested that, and, and of course we got the FIRES Act out, which says, you know, it says advice specifically with the purchase of a financial product. Yet these clients weren't purchasing a financial product, they were just reinstating it. So there was no new advice, no new any information. And yet they were penal in their approach. Some of them saying, oh, well, we're not so happy about that. And three or four months lapsed when they finally came through with another uh, charge against him saying, no, there was a complaint against him. He evidently had approached one of his old clients, which he had approached all of them, saying, I'm moving over to my father's practice. Please sign a broker's note, and then he will look after you in the meantime. As, so it will be sort of a harboring of, of his clients. This turned out to not, in fact, be a complaint against Lemuel, because uh, the client actually said, I've had almost four advisors in the space of just over 12 months. The existing advisor had passed on the client to Lemuel. He had then written her the policy. Sunlam went then passed her on to another advisor because Lemuel had left Sunlam. And that third advisor, in fact, had left Sunlam. So now Lemuel is, is the fourth person knocking on the door saying, I'm back in the picture. Would you mind signing over this broker's note? Which was about seven or eight months after he had already left Sunlam. She was a bit confused by all this and decided to phone Sunlam who then used this as evidence against him because he was trying to um, sell the services of father, supposedly. Meantime, he was just trying to house her, keep her warm until such time as his 12 months were up. Hmm. And then it got even nastier. Yeah, it did, because now they had written a nice letter saying initially, we suspect there have been some irregularities, in which I had responded to straight away. They had given me the three copies of the conversations that had been had, with those three problems with the debit order and stop order, which merely served to confirm that Lemuel had, in fact, reinstated the policies, but, you know, that was to be expected. He couldn't do it any other way. But they then took this a lot further, and they said, no, sorry, we are now finding you in breach of the FIRES Act. We believe that you have broken the FIRES Act. You're no longer fit and proper because of what you've done, allowing your son this opportunity. So we're going to cancel your contract, and we're going to file for your debarring with the FSB too. So you've you've been trying to help your son. The way I'm understanding this, your son yep. did something that he shouldn't have done while he was working for Sunlam. He left there. He wants to stay in the industry. Uh, he he did stuff which is which which uh, is is not unusual. Uh, it, in other words, not unheard of. 
yeah. but is but you said it's wrong. But in the meantime, come and work with me, son. Do a bit of admin as my private assistant, etc. Mm. Now it's it's escalated to the point because you gave your son uh, somewhere to work, you are now getting debarred. Yeah, spot on. And how do you fight something like this, or how do you? Yeah, so I, I was a bit unsure. But but how do you? I was shocked to see that they were a wanting to deprive me of a living. They were, had a total disregard for the nine years that I served as Sunlam as a representative and a branch manager. And then the, the next 25 years as an independent advisor who had handsomely supported Sunnam. Mm. During the process, the, the branch manager who I was dealing with had intimated that after the initial finding, and he was waiting for the follow-up report, he would call for a meeting and give me opportunity to actually do something uh, and intervene with him and discuss it. But they just uh, sidetracked that one and sent me the final letter saying you have been, your contract has been suspended, cancelled. So what happens now? Yeah, so I then was shocked. I then went as high as the, the top of marketing. That will be the brokers as well as the representatives, Mr. Moodley. And I said to Mr. Moodley, I know you from times past. I don't believe what's happened to me. Please won't you investigate the matter and see what can be done. He then came back to me and said, David, you're right, process and procedurally we haven't done well, but the facts remain the facts. I said, well, you know, we've been promised a hearing, but nothing has happened. You have found me guilty in abstention. You didn't bother to really hear my side of the story. No one was courteous enough to say, let's have a a meeting and and, uh, thrash this one out. They just went for the jugular, just took me out. So I got a friend who, who, who wrote a strong letter. Uh, he's a lawyer by profession, although he's a financial advisor, Kevin Creasy, and he helped me immensely. And he wrote to Sanam, and then the, let's call him the regional executive for the Cape province and, and other areas. He responded, he said, David, let's get together for a meeting. I said, there's no point getting together for the meeting. You've already canceled my contract. If you reinstate my contract, then by all means, let's have a discussion. And if it should lead to the canceling of my contract, fair enough. He said, no, that I can't do, but I've been able to get a mandate from Mr. Moody that we can revisit your, your situation. And if you can provide us with any other evidence, well, then we will consider giving you back your contract. So we did actually meet in Gordon's Bay at a restaurant with my friend Kevin Creasy, and he began saying, you know, Kali Janssen van Vieren, the regional executive, we shouldn't actually be having this discussion because Lemel should never have been debarred in the first place. He was unfairly, unjustly treated by Sana, and we really need to revisit that first. And he put a whole document together in response to our get-together of saying, please consider this because David Marvel shouldn't even be in this uh, negotiation, we should have been dealing with Lemo's case. It wasn't dealt with properly. There was no, there's no appeal system. It's actually quite wicked. In fact, I had phoned Professor Robert Vivian, which I'm sure you would know is the head of the Vitz Business School. He said to me, David, I agree with you. The insurance companies have got terrible power. They just debar you. They actually go in through the back of the FSB's website and they go and remove your name from the registrar. They don't ask permission. They don't do anything. They just have all this authority, which is totally unfair. They are prosecutor and judge yet again. Hmm. And when you next look, you get a letter from the FSP saying you've been debarred. So he says that actually needs to be taken to the high court where these insurance companies are 
remove or have this power that they have removed from them because it's terrible. And, uh, you know, you just don't get a hearing. There's no appeal system. You are just fired and sent into the oblivion. But w- what does it mean if you debarred? What, what, what are the consequences of that? Yeah, so in the olden day, it used to be the S-reference system. If you had done something dishonest, you were S-rated and you were deemed no longer fit for the industry. And that was quite acceptable because they could show you have stolen money, you had defrauded clients, uh, and that was acceptable. So when they moved to the D-bar, it was in response to the new Fires Act that was issued. And unfortunately, the Fires Act doesn't make provision for a fine or a penalty, which should be in place. So the Act in itself has the shortcomings. is either you're fit and proper or you're gone. There's no in-between. And uh, Professor Robert Vivian says there should really be some sort of penalty or some fine that can be imposed as opposed to this extreme um, behavior of the, the FSB. So if, if, if just to kind of summarize everything, your son was, with the advice to Sunlam about your son was give him a warning. Uh, that was ignored. He was then kicked out, debarred. But he did give, there was the option for him to again reapply in 12 months. During that 12 month period, he worked with you. But because he worked with you, you've now been debarred. How many clients Mm. do you have who are, who are Sunlum, uh, who have Sunlum policies? I don't know. You know, I'm not a big writer, but I I probably imagine I have 500 clients at least. And can you not switch them elsewhere to another company? Yeah, the only way you do that is you go and rewrite the policies. You know, the the policies have to be rewritten, and that's not my nature to go and cancel policies and rewrite them. Uh, it, it's, it's a common practice that happens in the industry. Yeah, it's expensive yeah, business. But, you know, yes, but, you know, in the end, it's it's not good for the industry, I don't think, to be substituting policies. And we can say, well, this, this company's got a better benefit A as opposed to the benefit one that you have at present. But at the end of the day, they're still pretty much of a muchness. Um, but, of course, my investment book is with Glacier, which is the independent subsidiary of Sunlam, and it's really been good dealing with them, but unfortunately my license or my contract with Sunlam is linked to that, and those clients I can move away. So that is my intent now to start one by one moving these clients away. So what, what happens now as far as your engagement with Sunlam is concerned? Is there a, a, an appeal court or a, a, some last resort that you can go through to? Or if you have been debarred by Sunlam, does that mean you debarred across the industry? Yes. So the letter that they wrote to me, they said they are applying for my debarment, but they don't actually have the right. They can only do that for representatives who are employed by them. They can make a recommendation to the FSB. And by the way, it is now called the FSCA Mm -hmm. after the Twin Towers legislation came in and they changed the name of the FSB. But most people know it as the Financial Services Board. Um, so they will have what they call a tribunal hearing, and they will oversee it uh, and to see they will hear Sunlam's side and my side. So at least you've got a court, or you've got yeah, uh, yeah, uh, no, uh, something and, there. And presumably, you're very confident that you won't have a problem. Yeah, there. I, I really, you know, I, I'd like to believe I am that nothing can happen. Um, but you know, these are all trial cases. This is new legislation, new opportunity. That, there was never an appeal court before, but now there is, fortunately, which makes things a lot fairer. And, you know, I say to some of them, 
I must be such a meanie, such a bad person. I must have stolen a lot of money for you to totally disregard my contribution that I've made to the industry. It's frightening uh, that you really haven't even had the courtesy to afford me an interview or a little conversation with the team. They somehow believe that their compliance and their forensic departments uh, do not afford the public any interaction or direct contact with them. And what's your son doing now? Yeah, well, this, this is the irony. He's now done his time, and some of them have issued a letter saying that we have no problem anymore. He can now be granted his license. I so don't we've applied it. to. I yeah, don't yeah. <laughs> this is, is, is the laugh a minute. The irony of the situation. So he's, he's back, he's back on board. He's all cool again. Uh, yep. and because he was working as your PA, I suppose, um, you're the one who's now going to get debarred. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the worst thing was the contract. And yes, admittedly with the contract, it's a 24-hour notice either way. The problem is if I cancel my contract with Sunlam, I cut my nose off to spike my face. But if Sunlam cut it off, they turn my lights and water off and they deprive me from making a living, which was really effectively a good pension that I built up. David Melville, uh, as I say, I've known him for a long time. He's written lots of articles for Biz News, very popular uh, financial advisor, and um, clearly has got himself into locking horns with one of the industry giants. Let's hope that this whole thing finds some kind of sanity at the end of the day. Well, that's been Rational Radio for today. Thanks very much for being with us. Remember, you can join us around noon every Monday uh, where we, will, we go live and, of course, uh, the rebroadcast is put onto um, the uh, businessradio.com uh, throughout the week. So, until the next time, from Alec Hogg, cheerio.